I, uh, I got a buddy. Uh, he's actually here today. I won't call him out, but his name's Jason. Uh, he pastors... Well, I'm just not going to make... I'm not going to point him out. Sorry. I, should. <laughs> I guess I just did call him out, but I won't point him out. Uh, he's, a, he's a buddy of mine and uh, pastors a church here in, uh, in the Grand Rapids area in Lowell called Impact. Uh, love the church. Uh, my wife and I uh, were on vacation last week. We came back and uh, we went and uh, worshiped and just uh, allowed God to, to speak to us and minister to us. And uh, Jason shared a story that um, I loved so much I called him uh, last week and said, yo, man, can I, can I steal this story uh, I think God wants to use it in our, in our service today. And he's like, yeah, I filled me in on a couple of details. Um, Jason's uh, parents both passed away uh, in the last year, year and a half. And uh, his, uh, his mom uh, passed away a few months after his father. And uh, Jason and his uh, brother and sisters had grown up um, on this uh, little hobby farm uh, that his uh, parents had moved to when uh, Jason uh, was young, and they had lived there for over 30 years. Um, near the end, uh, uh, when, when, when their health started to decline a little bit, they wind up selling the farm and moving closer uh, to family. Um, but that was kind of like the place that, that Jason and his brothers and sisters all grew up at. Grandkids had come and visited there. and So to honor his mom and dad, um, Jason and his brothers and sisters called the, uh, the couple that owns uh, the farm now and, and just said, could we come back this summer and uh, scatter my parents' ashes um, in, in the kind of garden area um, that we had? And he was telling me some stories about when they had first moved there. Uh, farm, house with the barn, backyard was kind of a big field, uh, not a lot of shade, but uh, Jason's dad was a visionary, kind of had an idea of what, what it could be. And so he found some little uh, silver maple saplings that were uh, kind of growing in this uh, kind of swampy area across the street. And, and uh, he decided he was going to go get some of those and, and replant them uh, in the backyard and, and do some different things. In fact, Jason says uh, he got roped into doing it when he was like 10. And the last thing that a 10-year-old wants to do on a hot summer day is some hard manual labor. So his dad mostly planted the trees and Jason helped scoop a little bit of dirt. And uh, he said they came uh, to the house, and, and the couple that owns it had, uh, knew that they were coming. And all of his brothers and sisters live in different parts uh, of the country and the state. And uh, they all kind of caravaned and gathered together uh, there in New York at the farm. And the wife of the couple came out, uh, a smile on her face to greet them, and had a handful, an armful of these quart little buckets. Uh, and she said, hey, we... We've picked as many of the blueberries as we possibly can. There's some blueberry bushes in the back of the property. Um, we've frozen as much as we can. Why don't you guys just go pick some blueberries and you can bring them with you. And uh, so uh, Jason's brothers and sisters, all the grandkids, grabbed the, the little quartz. They went to the back. They picked blueberries until they were full, both their bellies and the uh, actual quartz themselves. Uh, and then they took the ashes and they had scattered them uh, around the garden. And they were just kind of looking for a place where they could uh, share some stories where the kids could talk about the ways that their parents had invested in their lives spiritually, where the grandkids could share the, the memories they had of playing in the barn and on the property when they would come and visit grandma and grandpa. And, and so they found a, a little shady spot and sat down and for the next hour shared just some beautiful stories about their parents and grandparents. 
I'd like you to hold on to that story uh, for now and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. This is the text that we're going to be looking at today. Uh, We're in a brand new series. Uh, It's called Future Fruit. It's really kind of a vision series of what we think God is calling us as a church towards and what it's going to mean for us organizationally as well as what it's going to mean for us uh, as individuals. Uh, There's some things that I think God wants to say uh, to each of us in the next number of weeks. Could be some things that God's calling you to to understand uh, the mission, the reason that God's placed you on this earth. Uh, Could be some ways that you're going to understand what God is up to uh, here and why God has maybe called you into this community, into this family, and how he might want to use your gifts, your passions, whatever God has planted in you to make a difference. So we're going to be spending some time looking at this, but I wanted to start off in uh, John chapter 12. Now, uh, let me give you a real quick kind of context of where we're at in John's gospel, all right? The first 11 chapters, 12 chapters, John has basically been sharing all the different stories of Jesus' life, and we basically get three, a little over three years of Jesus' life as ministry in these first 11, 12 chapters, okay? Uh, all throughout this time, Jesus has been saying his hour has not yet come. We're now getting to chapter 12, and this is where halfway through, Jesus is going to say, my hour has now come. It's the hinge point in the entire book, and for the next 10 chapters, uh, John's going to focus on the last seven days of Jesus' life. So the first 12 chapters, like three years, and then we get 10 chapters that deal with seven days. And everything has been leading up to this moment in John chapter 12, and it all hinges on the passage that we're going to look at. Now, just before this has happened, let me just catch us up to speed. End of John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus back to life. The whole nation is starting to hear about this. More and more people are flocking to him. Uh, The Pharisees, the Sadducees, kind of the ruling political leaders of Israel are not happy. In fact, they decide at that moment, Jesus has to die. In fact, they actually say, it says in the text, they plotted from that day forward to kill Jesus. A couple days later, uh, Jesus is hanging out with Lazarus. And his sister, that's uh, Mary. Mary anoints Jesus with a very expensive perfume. Uh, It's called nard. And that nard uh, probably cost about a year's worth of wages. So think of whatever you are going to make this year. If you spent all of that on some perfume, and then you went and dumped it on Jesus. Now, uh, this perfume probably... The smell of it lasted on Jesus and his clothes throughout the last week of his life. And nard was generally often used for burials. And so it's kind of prefiguring the fact that Jesus is on his way now to die on the cross. And then, of course, ultimately to be resurrected. So that's happened with uh, Mary. Uh, Now Jesus has come into Jerusalem a week before he's going to die. We call this a Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. Everybody's like, yeah, Jesus, you stinking rock. We want you to be our king. Kick Rome's butt. That's what they're saying when they say Hosanna. (laughs) That's what all that basically means. And uh, Jesus comes in, but he he doesn't intend to be the king that they want him to be. And so just a few short days later, they start shouting, crucify him. The triumphal entry has happened. That's the beginning of chapter 12. And now we find ourselves in chapter 12, starting in verse 20. 
You can read it on the screen with me. It says, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So the hour's come. Up until this time, the hour had not come, the hour had not come, the hour has not come, the hour has The hour has come, Jesus says. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. I wanted to teach on this passage simply to use the metaphor that Jesus uses about a kernel of wheat. Unless it falls to the ground and dies, it just remains a single kernel. But if it's planted in the ground, it can produce many more seeds, a large harvest. That's really what I wanted to focus on. We'd been thinking through the whole series, what we felt like God was kind of calling us to talk about. And I was like, that's, that's like the verse, Jesus, I'm going to use that. And then I started studying it, right? Because I don't want to just like cherry pick a verse and not like really understand the context and make sure that I'm not using it out of context. And the more that I studied it, the more uh, commentators kept talking about this passage where it mentions the Greeks, well, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> That's kind of my thinking, like, all right, this is a couple of verses. Some Greek dudes show up, and they want to see Jesus. We don't even know if they do. Jesus just kind of goes into this bit about, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it's a single seed. But if it dies, if it's planted in the ground, then there could be this huge harvest, many more seeds. And he goes on to say that's what he's going to do. He's going to die. He's going to give his life. Anybody that wants to follow him has to do the same. You want to keep your life, you're going to lose it. You lose your life for Jesus' sake, you'll find it, you'll gain it. Jesus has been saying this throughout all all the different Gospels, and now here he is saying it right here, and this is this crucial moment. So why do they keep talking about these, like, Greek dudes? So, lucky for you and I, I have the telephone number of the guy who wrote the commentary, because it's Dr. Burge, who uh, is on our teaching team here at TLC. And so I called him up. I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm reading what you're saying here, but I'd like, help me understand it. What, what's, what's going on in the text that this is such a key moment, these individuals? And, and he started to remind me of a couple things that I thought would be helpful for all of us. Um, first and foremost, up until this time, all of Jesus' disciples were Jewish. Okay. Jesus had actually said that he had come for the lost sheep of Israel. The whole kind of movement of Christ and people following him were all insiders, at least from a Jewish perspective. Jesus was already seen as strange and kind of on the edges of kind of political power within Israel. And now here some Greeks are showing up. Now we know that these are probably God-fearing Greeks because they're coming to uh, to the festival, this is the Passover festival, but they're not Greek-speaking Jews. They're not even Greeks who have 
gotten circumcised and become followers of Judaism. These are just God-fearing Greeks, outsiders, Gentiles. We don't often see the big deal that this is because, quite honestly, the vast majority of us in this room are all Greeks, Gentiles, outsiders. We, we kind of take for granted the fact that the gospel of Jesus to become a part of Yahweh's family is possible for those of us who are not Jewish. But at the time, that was a pretty shocking idea that these Greeks would want to come and see Jesus. But what does that even mean? What's the big deal about coming and seeing Jesus? Uh, well, Dr. Burge reminded me that the original writing, of course, did not have any chapters or verses, right? What we hold in our hands, uh, if, if you're kind of new to Christianity, that might be a, come as a surprise. Um, but when the original authors wrote these uh, letters or these stories, uh, they did not put chapter and verses in them. That was something that we did later just so that we could find passages easier. So when John's writing this, he's anticipating that the original hearers are going to be picking up on clues that you and I might miss today. One of those clues is actually what's happening here in this passage, and it points back to an earlier part in John's gospel. Uh, if you have your Bible, flip back with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Remember, it's Philip and Andrew that these guys come and talk to, all right? You'll see why in just a second. Starting in verse 33, Jesus is calling some of his first disciples. He's already called uh, Simon, what we know as Peter, Andrew. So says the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, finding Philip. Okay, Philip's in our story in chapter 12. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. All right, so the same place that these Greeks are from, they're from. Why? Well, we know that Bethsaida, even though it's in Israel, is a pretty thoroughly Greco-Roman city in Israel, especially in Galilee. Jesus did actually a lot of his ministry in this area, pretty thoroughly Greek-speaking uh, area that a lot of Jews lived in. So Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I love what Nathaniel says. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Come and see, said Philip. Come and see. When the Greeks come to Philip and Andrew, why do you think they came to those two? They came to those two because those two also spoke Greek because they were from Bethsaida as well. And they say, we want to see Jesus. Uh, when John writes this in John chapter 12, he assumes that his uh, entire audience that's reading it absolutely gets the parallel of what happened in John chapter 1, where Jesus is calling the first disciples to now, who are all Jewish, remember, to now we have some Greeks, some outsiders that are coming and they go to Philip and Andrew and they want to also see Jesus. Something remarkable is about to happen. In fact, quite honestly, it's unthinkable to the Jews at this time. He's beginning to accept Greeks into God's family based not on ethnicity or outward religious rites, but based on their belief in him. You and I, 
We just assumed that Gentiles get into the family of God. But at the time, that was not what was expected or anticipated, even though Jesus has kind of been hinting at this all throughout. And when they say they want to come and see Jesus, they're not just tourists. It's not like they've heard, oh, here's this Jesus dude. He's pretty cool. We should get his autograph. It's not like they're going to see the Mona Lisa where they just want to take a look and be like, oh, that's pretty sweet. That's nice. No, when he says this, that they want to see Jesus, that's John's way of saying that they're interested in becoming disciples as well. When they say we want to see Jesus, in fact, you'll see this all throughout John's gospel, the, the seeing of Jesus, that is John's shorthand for saying they want to become disciples. They're not just interested in who Jesus is, they're saying, hey, we want, we want to become his, now, this is a huge deal too. You have to remember, uh, even though we kind of take it for granted, at the time, the idea that Jesus might invite outsiders inside to God's family was super scary for the disciples. They were already kind of at the edge of like the popularity and political power. And if Jesus does this, he's gone too far. Like there's no going back. And they know that. They understand what this is going to mean, what this is actually going to cost. Uh, now, I told you Jesus has been hinting at this all along. Uh, look at these verses and, and see if you can't see it already. John chapter three, verse 16, really famous verse. For God so loved what? The world, not just the Jews, but the world. Then we see in John chapter 10, verses 14 through 16. You could read that up there. It says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then look what he says. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus has been hinting at this all along. What do you mean you've got sheep that aren't of this pen, Jesus? Then if we were to flip uh, just a few days deeper into the story, it's five chapters later, but it's only a few days after John 12. John chapter 17, verses 20 to 21. Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. When he says my prayer is not for them alone, he's not just praying for the disciples, the 12. He's also praying for everybody that's going to believe in Jesus after hearing the disciples' message. In other words, it's going out beyond, broader, worldwide. The hour has come. This is where the real transition happens. Verse 23. All this time up until now in John's gospel, the hour has not yet come, the hour has not yet come, the hour has not yet come, and now finally Jesus says the hour has come. The hour has come for him to lay his life down, for him to glorify the Father and then be glorified by the Father. That's why he says in this pivotal moment, unless a seed falls to the ground, it remains a single seed, but if it falls to the ground, if it's planted, if it dies, many more seeds will come, a harvest will come, and Jesus said that's what's gonna happen with my life, but it wasn't just for Jesus, Jesus goes on to say, if, if you want to experience real life, you've got to lay your life down too. That was for the disciples that were there, but not just for those disciples, for any disciple. You and I, anybody who calls himself a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, the way that we get that, that we experience that is by laying down our lives. And when we do, God's able to take our single seed and see it blossom into Many seeds, seeds that can feed generations that come in behind us. Jesus is revealing why he's come. 
the hour has come is to reveal so that other people that you would never expect that might become a part of God's family can actually become a part of God's family now. That's why this passage, why John talks about this interaction with the, with the Greeks. It's moving beyond just Jews at this point. This is huge in John's gospel and for us because he's explaining to the disciples what this is going to cost them for it to move beyond them. Jesus wasn't the only one that was going to have to die, so too would his disciples. In fact, uh, Dr. Burge actually says this in his commentary. He says, this widening of the circle of Jesus' flock was a hurdle for the earliest Christians. Therefore, this episode in the Jerusalem temple bears tremendous significance. Without rejecting Israel, this story affirms a new direction in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is committed to men and women who live outside the cultural and racial norms of Jewish society. We can pretend that this wasn't costly for Jesus and his disciples, but you and I are the living proof that even though it was costly, it was worth it. We are. You and I. We show that what it cost them was actually worth it. Did you know uh, the disciples, all of them except for John, wound up dying pretty horrific deaths because of their faith? Every single one of them when they first started following Jesus, assumed Jesus was going to be the Messiah. He's going to come in. He's going to kick Rome's butt. They're going to rule the entire world from a throne in Jerusalem. Peter, John, Matthew, they were all like, this is going to be dope. We're going to be hanging out with all my friends, my boys, my, my, my homegirls. We're going to be like chilling in the temple. Jesus is going to be ruling. We're going to be here. Peter winds up. Does anybody remember from our uh, series this summer? Where does Peter wind up? It's an entire basilica named after him in Rome. Rome? No, that, like, those are the folks who are supposed to crush Jesus. And yet, Peter winds up realizing that when Jesus lays his life down, Peter's also going to have to lay his life down. Because it wasn't just about Peter, it was about those who were going to come behind. And so Peter's willing to go to Rome. John eventually pastors the church in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. Matthew goes on to Iran in northern Africa. Thomas went to India. Andrew went to modern-day Russia and then died in Greece. Paul was all over the Roman Empire. You're thinking to yourself, what in the world does this have to do with the vision series? Such a great question, I would love to tell you. Um, Jesus may call you to lay down your life by leaving where you are currently at. Just every single person in this room needs to at least be open to the possibility that if you're going to follow Jesus, he may call you to go someplace to tell others what, about what you've experienced, and it could mean uprooting who you are to go do that. So I just want to take a second and just give you a moment to process that potential. For most of us, though, the call to lay down our lives so that we can tell others what Jesus has done for us is going to happen right here in your backyard. It's going to happen in the classrooms that you go to at school, in the workplaces that you go to uh, every single day, in the neighborhoods that you live in, possibly even within your own families. The call to lay our lives down 
to allow our life to die, to be planted, that it might actually then grow and produce a harvest a hundredfold over. That call is going to cost something. Um, can I just, look, quick little side note. Wouldn't it be nice to live time of Jesus where you could like say to somebody, I mean, other than the fact that you wouldn't have an iPhone, but besides that, or running water, or, okay. You know why it would have been nice though? Because I could have said to my friend, right? Hey, we found the Messiah. His name is Jesus from Nazareth. And my friend might be like, Nazareth? What good could come from Nazareth? And I could say, well, come and see. Wouldn't that be pretty awesome? You want to tell somebody about Jesus? Like, yeah, I don't know. And you'd be like, yeah, but just come and check him out. Come and see. You could literally take your friend and they could see Jesus. What do we do today? Where, where does the Bible say that, that, we can, that we can say to someone, come and see? Do you know what the Bible says? Church. The church is the hands and feet of Jesus, the body of Christ. That's how we're described. In fact, when the church assembles together, Scripture says that the, when the body of Christ comes together, that Christ as the head of his body is uniquely present. Jesus is here right now. Jesus wants to speak to you, wants to, you to understand and recognize that he's here with you. And so when you say to somebody, hey, I'd love for you to, to meet Jesus. Like, ah, where do you take... Come with me to church. And they might be like, can anything good come from church? Come and see. Come and see. Look, we are a messed up group of folks, aren't we? We do not have it all right. We do not always handle our business well. We don't always treat each other the way that we should. But God is still moving in the lives of folks in this room still transforming my life, your lives. If you want somebody to come and see Jesus, I'm telling you, we don't have it all perfect. We don't. But man, there are some beautiful things that are taking place in the church. Ways that God is moving, ways that God is healing relationships and, and marriages, growing us emotionally, spiritually, mentally. Ways that God is caring for us in difficult times, ways that we come around folks in pain, ways that we step out into a hurting world and offer relief and aid and care and love. The opportunity to invite somebody to come and see Jesus actually starts when we invite them to church. It's kind of scary in some ways, but also kind of awesome in some other ways. The hour has come. Now, what happens though if we actually start laying our lives down and telling other people about Jesus, especially for those of us that get called to stay and do that where we're currently living. Let me just tell you that one of the effects of that is that our community, our family, our gathering is going to continue to grow. That's just a reality. This will mean that some of the things that you currently like right now about TLC will change, and you will feel exactly as some of the earliest disciples felt. You see, when Jesus started to bring Greeks, those outside, into the family, I guarantee that the first thought was, yo, 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 hang on, Jesus. 
<laughs> I thought this was about us. I thought we were going to sit at your right hand and your left hand. Isn't this about redeeming Israel? We like what we've got. We're not too sure that we want to open it up and change it. And the question will come back to us when we ask the same question with different words. What are you willing to give up to put to death so that others can experience what you have experienced, what you have? That's ultimately the call. That's what Jesus said he was going to do. It's what he said the disciples were going to do, were going to have to do. It's what you and I have to do as well. Um, if I'm being honest, one of the reasons that we're doing this series is because over this next year, we think that we're going to have to make some significant decisions about uh, who we are as a church, organizationally, and the things that God is calling us to and what we need to become to do what he's asked us to do. This is me setting us up for some bigger conversations in the year to come. And we think God's up to something this year. Uh, we don't know exactly what it is. Our leadership team has been praying, our elders, for over uh, a year, but especially in the last six months, our staff has been trying to seek God's face. God, what are you calling us to? What's that going to mean? What are we going to have to lay down? Uh, what's it going to mean for the space that we currently uh, uh, are housed in? The building is not the church, all right? We are the church. The church is when we gather together. This building's a nice tool, though. But it's just a tool. We gotta ask some questions about that. Not only that, but we still plan to plant our first church uh, in the 24-25 ministry year. 2024-2025. We're going after it. And our goal is not just to plant one church. Our goal is to plant many churches, over the course of however long God allows TLC to, to exist. Not only that, but we don't want to just plant churches and then like, you know, give money for a couple years and then kind of be like, all right, good luck now. All right, like you just like had a baby and, you know, you finally weaned them off formula and uh, you're like, all right, good luck, little guy. You can do it. No, no, we don't expect to still be spoon feeding our kids at 18 either. But we recognize that there's a life cycle. When we plant churches, we want to plant the family of churches where we're caring for one another. Just as Central Wesleyan Church did that for us when they sent us out, we want to do that for others. Uh, I want to be a part of a church that not only practices the golden rule, but also the silver rule. Have you ever heard of this? Probably not, because I just kind of made it up. But I think you're going to like it. So uh, the golden rule, do to others what you would like done to you. That's Matthew chapter 7. Okay, I didn't make it up. I, I just named it. Uh, these are Jesus' words, okay? You guys have all heard the golden rule before. The silver rule, do for others what's been done for you. That's John chapter 13, verse five. Jesus washes the disciples' feet and he says, now that I've done this for you, do that for others. The golden rule is do unto others what you'd like to be done to you. The silver rule is do for others what's already been done for you. Jason and his family were sharing stories for about an hour talking about what their parents and grandparents had done for them, the ways that they had invested their lives into them and the fruit that that was producing. And as they were about to leave, uh, Jason said it hit him out of the blue that the tree that they had been sitting under for the last hour in the shade was the tree that he, he and his dad had planted about 40 years earlier. His dad never got to experience the gathering of that family under that tree but his dad had a vision for what the future was going to look like. His dad planted that tree not for himself, but for his kids and his grandkids. 
Not only that, but the blueberries that they ate actually had been planted about 40 years earlier as well. And they came from his great-grandparents' farm in upstate New York. And they had brought some of those bushes and planted them. And now generations later, they were still feeding people. That's what happens when we're willing to plant trees that we may never experience the shade of. Plant trees that we may never be able to experience the fruit from. We plant them for those coming up behind. Why? Because someone planted trees that we've sat under. Someone else laid down their life for us to experience what we've experienced in Jesus. Nobody in this room paid for the seat that you're sitting on. About 20 years ago, somebody that was a part of Mars Hill Bible Church bought these seats, hoping that the people that would sit in them would find Jesus, build a relationship with him. And now 20-some years later, they were gifted to us And I promise you, the person that originally purchased those chairs or the people had you in mind. They didn't know you. They didn't know you. Genesis United Methodist Church, who originally built this building into a church, they had you in mind. They didn't know you. But God knew what was coming, and so they were willing to plant a seed, knowing that generations coming behind them were going to experience the fruit of that tree. That's the kind of church that I want to be a part of. The best time to plant the tree is 20 years ago. The next best time is now. It's a proverb that's like attributed to a thousand different philosophers and 20 different religions, but it's very true. The best time was 20 years ago. The next best time is now. Friends, we're not 20 years ago. We are now. What is God calling us as a church to do? What Seeds is he asking us to plant. Things that God has entrusted to us that we will give up and let die so that God can then produce a harvest beyond it. I want to be a part of a church that in this next season is willing to lay down what God has given us, knowing that we personally may not benefit from it, but our kids and our grandkids and people that we haven't even met yet are going to come to experience the very thing that we've experienced. This is the pursuit of future fruit, planting trees that others are going to eat from. Father God, we want to be about the next generation. We want to lay our lives down knowing that you can take the death of our life and you can actually then produce a harvest from it. Jesus, let us be faithful to the calling that you are giving us. God, the vision that you've placed in front of us, God, let it, oh, please, Lord, let it not be about me, let it please not be about us. God, let it truly be about you and those that are gonna come behind. Jesus, check us if we're doing something that is not from you. Don't let it go forward, block it. But God, in the places that you are asking us that you need us to step out in faith, God, give us the courage to do so. For your glory, for those that you want to minister that are coming behind us. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.